This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Mr. Philip Shepard. He is recognized as an international authority on embodiment, which we'll talk about today. His unique techniques have developed to trans- were developed to transform our experience of self and world. And I believe a lot of it has to do with taking a restless mind and making it more focused. His books, New Self, New World, uh, and Radical Wholeness. All of this will be posted up. Uh, Philip, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Uh, Philip, um, we're delighted to have you on. Uh, uh, the person who uh, recommended you to us uh, is somebody who I value, uh, uh, and she said you've been instrumental in helping her develop her own uh, spirituality. And so we're, we're very happy to have you here. Give us, please, if you can, briefly, um, the story of what brought you to the work you do and in, in what you call embodiment. <laughs> well, uh, to be perfectly frank, what brought me to it was rage, um, which takes some explanation. When I was a teenager, I felt... I felt confounded and violated and compromised essentially by the story my culture was presenting about what it means to be human. Um, And that, you know, that story is expressed in the way we eat dinner, in our language, in our hierarchies, in our values. And uh, it's so hard to be within a story and, and, find a way to question what is utterly normal to you. So I, I, um, I left at the age of 18. I went to England and I bought a bicycle and I headed off for Japan. And I cycled through Europe and the Middle East and India and Japan. And I passed through so many different ways of understanding what it means to be human. And each one of them was luminous. And each of them is limited. But I was I was able to come back to my culture, able to ask questions. And and where I've come to in in that very personal quest is the understanding that our culture systematically desensitizes us to the ability to feel wholeness, to feel the present as a whole, to feel the self in its wholeness, to speak from your wholeness, to listen from your wholeness. We're, we're so obsessed with this shattered world of analysis um, that, that, that to sit and feel the present as a whole is a real struggle for us. And that's, you know, that's a problem because all there is is wholeness. Mm-hmm. And if you're disabled in your ability to feel wholeness, you cannot feel reality or respond to it. Mm-hmm. Philip, uh, I'm curious. I read that you cycled through Europe, the Middle East, India, and Japan. I, first, I can't imagine what it's like to bicycle in in, in much of India, but uh, when 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 that it's uh, not uh, to walk on the yeah. streets. Of India. Uh, a couple a couple of questions in your uh, uh, in your travels, uh, especially then. Did you feel that there were cultures that 
encouraged and allowed for wholeness more than others. And secondly, when you're riding your bike, and you obviously did a lot of it, what's going on in your head while you're riding? Is it meditative? Is it analytical or whatever? So those two questions. Uh, let's start with the second first. Um, uh, you know, you're on the bike and you are with every push of the pedal moving into the unknown. And I became so comfortable with that. One of the reasons I became comfortable with it was because, you know, in a way my life depended as the sun was beginning to set each day on finding a place where I could spend the night safely. And every night I, I would be guided, I don't know what other language to use, to a place, and I could feel that guidance tangibly, to a place where I could spend the night. And, and I, you know, I slept outside the whole way and never once uh, had any problem with that. So I, that attunement to wholeness was necessary for my life and is something that has stayed with me. Um, as far as cultures attuning to wholeness, I, oh boy, I, you know, I think ever since the Neolithic revolution, every culture that has um, embraced agriculture and the domestication of animals and eventually industrialization has risked a shattering of wholeness in some way or another. We, when we are driven by idea, we are, we are living in a top-down modality with ourselves and with the world around us. And we, you know, that, that credence and authority we give to idea over sensation um, is one that keeps us estranged from the world around us and, and to a large extent, insensitive to the wholeness that holds us in its embrace. Mm-hmm. So your uh, work centers around the concept of embodiment. Embodiment. Um, I, I'm guessing that when people hear that word, uh, they it, it has a certain uh, meaning to them, uh, and note those uh, the meanings attributed to the word would vary. So how do you define embodiment? Yeah, with your indulgence, I'd like to begin by how I don't define embodiment. Um, because embodiment in our culture has come to mean listening to the body. And that is, a, that is a metaphor that is embedded in this overall top-down paradigm that I was so desperate to escape on my bicycle. If you're listening to the body, what that injunction is, is, is telling you to do is it's saying there's a wall separating you from your body. And the best you can do is to sit in your head and put your ear to that wall to, to listen to what's going on on the other side. So, you know, embodiment for me is not about listening to the body. It's about listening to the world through the body. And if I were going to define embodiment, I would say it's a, it's a coherence of being in which the whole of your intelligence attunes to the present. And we have been indoctrinated 
to believe that we can think more clearly with this segregated portion of our intelligence in the head than we can with the whole intelligence of our being. Um, we have rent asunder, we have divided our thinking from our being. Um, and there is, an, there is another way of attuning to the world. And that, you know, that to me, that attunement to wholeness is inseparable from the spiritual path. Mm-hmm. I don't know what spirituality is about if it's not about the attunement to wholeness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Philip, uh, and by the way, for listeners, it's philipshepherd.com. All the information on talks, workshops, coaching, etc., are there. So somebody comes to you, they come to a single workshop. Uh, do you give them uh, tools to go home with, procedures, techniques to work on? Uh, is it more philosophical than that? And uh, are there a series of workshops uh, that cover different areas? Great series of questions. Um, I primarily teach a weekend workshop. There's also an intermediate workshop. There's also a facilitator's training. I'm, I'm just about to start facilitator's training number eight, um, and it's a year-long program where we get, get together at a retreat for five days, three times a year. Yes, they go home with tools. There is a philosophical context because, I mean, if, if you can't you can't act or think outside of the box if all you know is the box. And so we, I mean, it's been thousands of years that we've been committed to this migration out of the body into the head and into a top-down modus operandi for everything we do. So, so the workshops I teach bring awareness to the breath in a way that helps people experience it, not as a top-down phenomenon, but as, a, in a sense, a bottom-up phenomenon. In other words, you know, we know it's important to breathe deeply into the body, and so we push the breath from the top down, and that takes muscles, and the muscles get tired, and the breath goes shallow again. But that's, you know, that's not how a baby breathes. You look at a baby in its crib, and there is this release of the whole body to the breath and that release is initiated in the pelvic floor so you know it's a really really specific sensation and when the pelvic floor releases to the in-breath the whole of the body is invited to release with it so so what we're doing in the workshop is encountering patterns that our culture has seeded into our neurology and those patterns run with impunity until they're noticed. And as soon as you notice it, you gain choice. And then whether you exercise the choice or not, that's that's what happens after the workshop ends. Interesting. Philip, uh, I'm curious about your own uh, spiritual background. Were you raised in any tradition? Did you uh, come to... Uh, uh, a point of exploration? Do you draw from different uh, traditions in uh, framing your work? Yeah, I uh, I was raised in the Christian tra- tradition and always chafed against the metaphor being taken literally. Mm. Um, and it was offered, you know, as a child, you're offered it literally. 
I could, I could, I could, feel, I don't know how to say this. I could feel the present as, as a presence from a very young age. I could feel its companionship. I could feel it with me. And in my, in my quest to gain clarity on that, you know, I've, I've, I've been gifted um, with insights from Buddhism, from Judaism, from Sufism, from, from Zen, from any source I could, always, always cautious about the differentiation between metaphor and the unnameable experience of wholeness. Very good. Now, <clears throat> uh, you recommend, in, in your list of books you recommend, there are two authors, uh, uh, Thomas Merton and Andrew Harvey, uh, uh, that uh, you recommend, and in there, in in particular, in Andy Harvey's book, uh, "The Mystical Path to Christ," it talks about rather than studying about Christ, it's about living in Christ or whatever. So, wh whether you're from a Christian tradition or another tradition, uh, is it not so much about uh, uh, emulating the teachings of these prophets or teachers or, or gods? however people would define them of the past, but more about uh, embodying their consciousness? Yeah. You're heading exactly where I would go. So, so my, in my experience, the body is a resonator. When, 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 when you're in a state of full embodiment, the body is like a singing bowl. And it resonates to the present. And, and inner work is absolutely crucial. But to me, the inner work, the purpose of it is to locate the shadows in the body, the consolidations, the, the cotton balls that have been stuffed there that dull it to the present, that dull its resonance. And, and, the quest, you know, we're in a culture that is attached to the myth of aloneness and independence. And if you if you buy into that myth, then your experience will be understood to be strictly private. Mm -hmm. And once you understand your experience to be strictly private, your primary job in life becomes to manage that experience to make it successful, to supervise it. And, and then your primary focus is on the self. And it's like you take the spotlight of your attention and you cast the world into darkness as you, as you pour your attention and your scrutiny on the self. And I think, you know, that, that releasing of the cotton balls opens that spaciousness within the body that you can then resonate to the present and the and the liberation that offers is one of weaning yourself away from self-consciousness and, mm -hmm. and we're bound in self-consciousness by our culture onto the generosity that allows your attention to rest on the present and feel through attunement the guidance that it offers uh, I'm finding a fascinating paradox in what you're saying, and I wonder if I'm uh, 
perceiving you correctly. Uh, it sounds that in, uh, you're saying that be, by becoming more, uh, I, I, I guess I would say, attuned or uh, in touch with the wholeness uh, through the body, um, through embodiment, um, at the same time, it sounds like you uh, find that people are more in touch with the uh, functions of their body and the gifts that the body brings, but at the same time, uh, less attached to the separation of that body from other bodies. <laughs> and tell us about, you know, is there an expanded sense of connection that comes with this? I, I love that question because where it takes me is to a culture in Africa, the anglo ebe culture. And they have a completely different set of senses from ours. They don't even have a word for senses. What they have is a word, sesalalame, that means feel, feel at flesh inside. Hmm. They feel the sounds of the world in their bodies. They feel the sights of the world in their bodies. And they have, you know, they have a word that means to listen with the ear, but that's not real listening. So that, that inner aliveness to the world is, in my mind, the spaciousness that I speak of. And anthropologists describe the anglo Eve as having a porosity of being and a radical indeterminacy of the self. And that last phrase sounds like a nightmare to our culture because we are so bound in the myth of independence. But, but our porosity is inescapable. And we can pretend there's a boundary around the self that contains the self, but it's an illusion. And it's more specifically the illusion of the mythological tyrant. So Joseph Campbell describes the tyrant as the man of self-achieved independence. Mm. And when you, when you pause with that phrase, self-achieved self independence, you realize that's the American dream. Mm -hmm. That's you know that's the mansion on the hill with the perimeter fence and the security. That we we as a culture we have come to aspire to the fantasies of the tyrant, and they are fantasies because independence is 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 a, a, a chimera. It's you you can search the cosmos for an example of independence, and you won't find it. Everything leans on everything. Everything depends on everything. Fascinating. Uh, 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 Philip, I wanted to ask, uh, you teach the embodiment uh, present process, T-E-P-P, -P, and it's a yeah. series of practices uh, that you've developed. Uh, uh, two questions. Do those practices remain the same? Are they the same for all people? Or has that evolved and changed? And is there an end game? Is there a point where you've reached the goal you want to achieve and the embodiment present process isn't necessary anymore. You are where you want to be. Um, that's good. The um, yes, yeah, the, 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 the work always changes, and yet there is a curriculum. If mm. the work is not an act of play, then, then it's become corrupt, and the play keeps it changing. In terms of an end game, um, you know, 
you could say the end game is wholeness, but wholeness has this peculiar quality that you never get there. You never wake up one morning and say, oh, finally I'm whole. What's next on the agenda? Um, it, it's wholeness. You see, wholeness is the one ideal I'm aware of that, that, that requires surrender in a way that cannot be achieved. I mean, you, you can't achieve wholeness because you are whole. You're held in wholeness. There's no escaping it. All you can do is surrender to it. But these, you know, these other ideals that are beautiful, laudable ideals of compassion and truthfulness and, you know, courage, um, they, they carry the risk of putting us into a divided state because we're so implacably top down. So the, that risk shows up the moment you go into a situation and you say, oh, I should be compassionate here. And there's a part of you that knows exactly how compassion feels, exactly what it looks like, and it can bring the rest of you along to achieve that. That's that. There's no end game like that in, in wholeness. All you can do is surrender to it, and you surrender to it with every breath. And in my experience, when you do surrender to wholeness, those other ideals fall into place. It, you know, in wholeness, how could you be other than compassionate? How could you say something you knew not to be true? It, it just, they come, so to aspire for those ideals directly seems to me um, uh, a little um, uh, off the mark that, that the, the surrender that carries us into wholeness carries us into into the reality in which we can stand with two feet and feel ourselves um, moved by a river that has no end game. Very nice metaphor or image, I should say. Uh, Philip, I, in reading some of the material on your website, I was intrigued to see uh, reference to uh, other cultures, <clears throat> mostly earlier cultures, in which uh, thinking is understood not to be in the head, where we assume it is, but in other parts of the body. Could you, you talk about that and how it's relevant to us uh, head-oriented uh, people? <laughs> yeah, so, so there's, this, there's this neurological fact that the body processes a million times more information than we can be consciously aware of. So we've got this conceit that our conscious awareness is like the pinnacle uh, of our intelligence. And, and it's just not, it's, it's not even the tip of the iceberg. And there are, as you say, there are other cultures that experience the center of their thinking in the belly or in the heart. And in fact, Western cultures began there. If you go back to the Neolithic, um, you find that uh, in the imagery, um, the, 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 the belly is absolutely central. And then, you know, then we discovered agriculture and we domesticated animals and we started to take control of the world around us. And three things began to happen. 
simultaneously. That center in the belly began to rise through the body towards the head. And by Homer's day, it was in the chest. And Homer uses a word freenies over and over in his, uh, in his epics. And freenies translates into English as two words, mind and diaphragm. And by the time Plato came along in his dialogue Timaeus, you can see we're already, you know, the head in Timaeus is referred to as the divine sphere and the body is referred to as the vehicle. And the other two things that happened in that ascent uh, towards the head of our consciousness is that we left the mother-centric world of early Neolithic civilizations and moved towards the father-centric or patriarchal. And we left, the third thing is we left the goddess of the earth and turned our attention to the gods of the sky. So all of those things happened as this center of our awareness rose through the head. And there is physiologically a brain in the belly. It's, it's, it's not just organs sloshing around like pumps. There is, there is, there is a, a network of intelligence suffusing the viscera and other cultures recognize that. And that is our intelligence. You know, there's a difference between the intelligence of the head and the intelligence of the pelvic bowl. They are complementary. They're meant to work in harmony, and we've severed that relationship. And the head excels at analysis and, and organization and perspective, and it creates a known world. It creates known relationships. So it, it renders the world static. And that other intelligence in the pelvic bowl attunes to wholeness. It integrates, um, brings things into wholeness, and it, it, it opens us to a world of felt relationship. And, you know, I can sit in the room that I'm in now, and I know everything around me. I know that's a book and a wall and a mirror and a ceiling. I can name it all. And if I know it all, there's no reason to feel any of it. But that, that's the conceit of the intelligence in the head, that the world is static and that things are apart. And, and that intelligence in the head has, has fashioned us a world of four dimensions that tell us how far things are from each other. And we as a culture neglect entirely the dimension that tells us everything is in contact with everything else at all times. It's uh, fascinating. And, and I'm curious, uh, uh, <clears throat> we need to wrap it up in a, in a couple of minutes, but I'm curious, uh, uh, people develop in this way, uh, as they do through your workshops, how our social institutions, our, our, our political institutions, uh, on every level, how those things would change if the, uh, uh, if, uh, the individuals uh, uh, we're living more in wholeness. Yeah, there's a. I, I wrote a piece called the Embodiment Manifesto that says uh, that basically claims embodiment is the most political act you can you can undertake because you come to trust not an enclosed knowing, not a not a, a, a manufactured system of understanding, but you trust the attunement. Um, you know, which to me is indistinguishable from 
a spiritual attunement to the living present. And I actually, in, in a chapter in my second book, Radical Wholeness, I speculate that if, if, if our attunement to wholeness became a priority, what would change? And everything would change, right? Mm-hmm. What, you know, what if an education system considered helping a child into its wholeness as the foremost value? Well, <laughs> you can imagine how, how very, very different it would be. And so it goes with, with everything else. Quick question, Philip, um, and this is, <laughs> this is unfair because we're asking you to give a, a short answer to, uh, you know, a, a question people have been pondering for thousands of years. In your research on the body and the nature of how we think and that sort of thing, what is your conclusion? Some people would say that we are conscious as a result of the uh, activity of the brain. And other people, and of course all the spiritual traditions, would say, no, no, consciousness exists, the self exists, and the brain is there only to process. But consciousness uh, precedes and succeeds the uh, life of the brain. Where are you? Intelligence is an emergent phenomenon. It is not found in the bits and pieces that assemble an organism. There is an, there is an intelligence, a consciousness that guides an ant colony that is, that is completely other than the additive intelligence of all the ants. And, and that attunement to the present puts us in touch with a guidance that we cannot name, that we can only feel. But our consciousness is the ability in its fullest potential to attune to that larger consciousness. And, and, you know, quantum physics tells us that matter and consciousness cannot be separated. So that's the side I come down on. Great. Thank Thank you for that short and uh, important answer. Great. And and again, uh, the website, philipshepard.com, his talks. Uh, workshops, coaching, everything you need to know is there. Fascinating stuff. And uh, thank you so very much for coming on. All the disinformation uh, about how to uh, find out more about Philip and his work will be posted up. And uh, I want to invite you to come back on sometime in the near future. We'd love to talk talk more. It will be a thrill. I'd enjoy every minute of it. Thank you, Philip.